sociologist talking real crap. to another episode of Sociologists Talking Real Shit. Today we have one of the true giants in our field. And those of you who are sociologists, you need no introduction to our next guest. Those of you who are new to sociology or casual followers, by the end of this introduction, you'll you'll see why he's one of our giants. Dr. Eduardo Bonilla Silva is the James B. Duke Distinguished Professor of Sociology at Duke University. He received his BA in sociology with a minor in economics in 1984 from the Universidad de Puerto Rico, Rio Piedras campus. He received his MA in 1988 and his PhD in 1993 from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He worked at the University of Michigan in 1993 to 1998 and Texas A&M University 1998 to 2005 before joining Duke University in 2005. He gained visibility in the social sciences with his 1997 American Sociological Review article, Rethinking Racism, toward a structural interpretation, where he challenged analysts to study racial matters structurally rather than from the sterile prejudice perspective. His book, Racism Without Racist, fifth edition in 2017, has become a classic in the field and influenced scholars in education, religious studies, political science, rhetoric, psychology, legal studies, and sociology. And the sixth edition is, edition is scheduled for 2021. To date, he has published five books, namely White Supremacy in the Civil Rights Era, co-winner of the 2002 Oliver Cox Award given by the American Sociological Association, Racism Without Racist, Colorblind Racism and the Persistence of Racial Inequality in the United States, 2004 Choice Award, and again in 2015, White Out, The Continuing Significance of Racism with Ashley Doan, in 2008, White Logic, White Methods, Racism and Methodology with Tukufu Zuberi, and also the co-winner of the 2009 Oliver Cox Award, and in 2011, State of White Supremacy, Racism, Governance in the United States, with Moon Ki Jung and uh, Zhao H. Costa Vargas. His research appeared in journals such as Sociological Inquiry, Racial and Ethnic Studies, Race and the Society, Discourse and Society, American Sociological Review, Journal of Latin American Studies, Contemporary Sociology, Critical Sociology, Sociology of Race and Ethnicity, Research in Politics and Society, The Annals of the American Academia of Political and Social Science, The American Behavioral Science Scientist, Political Power and Social Theory, and Social Problems, among others. We're not even done yet. We're not even done yet. Bonilla Silva has received many awards, most notably 2007 Lewis Costner Award given by the Theory Section of the American Sociological Association for Theoretical Agenda Setting in 2011, the Cox Johnson Fraser Award given by the American Sociological Association to an, an individual or individuals for their work in the intellectual traditions of the work of these three African-American scholars. He served as the president of the Southern Sociological Association and the American Sociological Association in 2017 to 2018. 
His most recent work is an article titled Racist Class Anxieties, Hegemonic Racism, and Democracy in Trump's American Social Currents in 2018. Feeling Race, Theorizing the Racial Economy of Emotions in the American Sociological Review in 2019, Colorblind Racism in Pandemic Times in the Sociology of Race and Ethnicity 2020, and I'm going to do my best because please forgive my Spanish mispronunciation, I'm not a native speaker, and it's been a while, so Aquí No Hay Racismo 2020. He is working on papers to, one, reorient work on microaggressions, two, on how to theorize racial formation in the Americas and the Caribbean, three, on the import of normative habituated behavior in the reproduction of systematic racism, and four, on explaining why people in Latin America do not interpret overtly racial racist images as racist. Welcome, Dr. Eduardo Bonilla Silva, one of the goats, okay? In fact, if you were going to make a Mount Rushmore of sociology, <laughs> There would be an argument for you to be on that Mount Rushmore, right? Absolutely, I must be there, man. I'm the man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know the thing. I, you don't mind if I call you Eduardo because we go way back. Uh, hey, we go back what twenty plus years? Long oh, time. You, it, it, you know, I'll tell you when it was. It was when you gave that talk at ABS on. Um, on Barack Obama before Barack Obama got elected. Oh, I, yeah. So about I, 12 years. About 12 I years. know that folks didn't like it. You, you, <laughs> no, you know what? I was right. I was right. So history has, you know, uh, done good to me. History absolved me like Fidel. But you know what? I, I Everybody hated me in 2008, 2009. By 2010, they're like, mm, maybe he had a point. <laughs> you know, you know, I, when I was at that talk and I saw the title of the talk, it was something provocative, like when white people like a black candidate too much. Wasn't yeah. that the title? Yeah. And, like, yeah. Yeah. And when I saw that, I thought, oh, damn, because I already knew as a black man. I thought, oh, there's going to be a large portion of the audience who's been waiting for a black president for, uh, for a long time and didn't want to hear nationalism. that. Nationalism is great, but it's also problematic. Yeah. And they could not see a critique from the left. I mean, I voted for, for Obama, uh, yeah. but I, criti I criticize him. So anyway. Yeah, I, I voted for him too, but I also criticize him too. But By the way, I, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I did like second term Obama better than first term Obama. Well, he was a little bit free Obama, but still yeah. he, he could not deliver because he was blocked. And now, 12 years later or so, I mean, uh, what, <laughs> four years later, five years later, we're learning He's now more free, yeah? So yeah. now he can talk about racism and how all the stuff that he went through. But when he was going through, he didn't say anything. Yeah. And, and by the way, you know, you talk about predicting things. You predicted exactly the way it was going to be. One of the things I remember, yeah. things I remember you saying was that a black man is not going to be able to be as progressive about things as a white man is. You know, because he has to worry about being black and what people are going to say and do. And you were right, especially that first term. First time, let's do history. The first time he sort of uh, made a peep on race was the incident with Skip Gates in Harvard. Yeah. And his first comment was the police acted stupidly. Obviously, we know it's not stupidly, it's predictably racist. Yeah. Right. Anyway, that was on Monday. By Wednesday, his people were like, man, you need to cut, you need to change that. So on Wednesday, he said, 
I should have calibrated my words better. By Friday, he came with this idiotic idea of the beer song. Yep, the beer song. He was real careful mm -hmm. on race. Yeah. Until yeah. move forward five years, six years later, when the incident in, in South Carolina, and uh, when the nine, nine folks were, were killed by the racist guy, yeah? Uh, and then he went there and talked a bit deeper than before, but he was real quiet because he depended on, on white voters uh, and white donors, and they were not happy with the idea that, oh, we thought you were different. You thought you were black, but sort of a good black that would never put us down and call us racist. Yeah? Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm a good black. I will call you racist. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, so, so Eduardo, before we get started, man, because one of the things that happened at that conference is I saw you at um, uh, one of the functions afterwards, and we started drinking some tequila together and talking about some of your thoughts. So we have had a few drinks together. So I have to ask you right now, what are you drinking, brother? I'm drinking the same thing I'm reading. I'm reading anything by Dr. Johnny Walker Black. <laughs> and his, his new book is called Celebration Blend. Really good. <laughs> and I'm also reading anything by Dr. Ezra Brooks. Uh, Herman. Uh, powerful brother. Powerful brother. <laughs> I, I see I see you doing some heavy reading. You went from that light uh, reading yeah, to heavy reading. To. Yeah, man. The pandemic has been good to me, man. Every day is Friday. <laughs> <laughs> Every day at 4 p.m. or so, it's like, okay, tomorrow I don't have to go anywhere but home. So, yeah, that's true, man. To, that's true. Stream, you know. to you, my brother, I'm drinking some Uncle Nearest with you, man. Okay, yeah. You alerted me about the that uh, bourbon. I will get me, by the way, they have like two three, or three different kinds. You have to tell me which one is best. Oh, I'll tell you which one. I, I got to get the bottle later, but I'll tell you which one is the one I'm drinking and stuff. I'll probably try them all. I mean, it's owned. It's black owned by a black woman. I know. saw and I read the story and, you know, and the brother, what's his name? The guy in horror movies. What's his name? Oh, Jordan? Uh, Jordan Peele. Jordan Peele. Jordan Peele did for them. If you go to their site, they, they, he did like a short video with the history etc it's really well done man i must check that out. Finally, the, the brother was the one who sort of started doing good bourbon and even developed new ways of filtering the water etc yeah yeah so you know I, I don't get any uh sponsorship or anything but if uncle nearest wants i'll give him free sponsorship we should hey <laughs> Hey, you it's, it's good too. Dude. It's good. I mean, it's really good. You know, by the it's way. really good. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So, so uh, I want to start off. Well, you were talking about the books you read, which currently is these books by Johnny Walker and so on. But I want to ask you another question. Okay, uh, one of the seminal works in sociology is your book, actually, "Racism Without Racist," right? Colorblind racism and the persistence. Okay. Um, and this is like a book that all of us who are in race, uh, race scholarship have to read, okay? Have to read. I mean, if you haven't read it, you're not a race scholar, basically, right? But some people are going to question this. Are we still living in a racial time period that you discussed in the book? Are we going into more of a time period of racism with racists again? 
Yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah, uh, I'm working on the sixth edition, and in the preface, I call it more than a preface. I begin by saying something like racism without races or racism with races. And then I go through the argument that it's in moments, racial regimes, think about slavery, think about Jim Crow, or now what I call the new racism that emerged in the late 60s and 1970s. There are always elements of the past are re-articulated or retooled for the new moment. And therefore, because they are part of the moment, they, they go up and down. So those of us of a certain age, remember that in the 1980s, we had to deal with Reagan. Yeah? And for us, Reagan was the worst person in the world. Now he's looking good. Yeah? Then, then George Bush was like, oh, wow, George Bush is horrible. Yeah? And then W was the worst racist in the world. And now we have Trump. So what I think I still can call it racism without racism. I think that's still both colorblindness as well as the strategies of domination of the post-civil rights era, we'll talk more about them later, uh, are in place. But one would be an idiot not to admit the obvious, which is the ebb and flow of traditional racism has increased. So the proportion of people who are overtly old-fashioned racist out there seems to be uh, uh, increasing. However, I still contend, as bad as they are, and they are bad, yeah, the Boogaloo boys, the Proud boys, all kinds of boys, yeah, <laughs> and girls. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's be honest, uh, they are not the ones who keep us uh, down 24-7. They're not the ones who exclude us from bank, from getting loans, or from neighborhoods, or from uh, getting promote, promoted to associate and full professors in our units, etc. So, so there is still a new version of racism that is also sort of connected to elements of the past. You know, you know that brings up a really good point because uh, there's a couple things that you notice about this movement, right? Is that, and which fits with what you're talking about. One, there are minorities in these white supremacist groups, and some of them, like Ali Alexander, actually help organize them. The, so. the head, the head of the Proud Boys, is a black Cuban. Yeah, <laughs> you know, does that kind of say that white people are so used to people of color doing things for them that they even outsource their white supremacy? Uh, it says that, but it says something deeper. It also says that from slavery onwards, we have had people in our team playing for the other team. That is not new. Mm. I always tell uh, my students in the class that uh, during slavery, although most blacks were enslaved, among the free black population. There were some people who were not only free blacks, they owned blacks. And although most owned one or two, usually family members, basically it's a transaction to free them. Some of them did own 200 Africans, yeah? So if you own 200 Africans, like the Metoyer family in Louisiana, we should not be surprised why this family, plus a lot of the elite Creoles, <laughs> in Louisiana wanted to fight to defend the Confederacy because defending the Confederacy was defending their class interests. Of course, they didn't know they were black, so white people were like, I'm, uh, we're not going to allow you to fight for the Confederacy because you are black. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Let's talk about systemic racism for a little bit because this is the thing people don't talk about as much. And it, it also fits into something you just mentioned too that I wanted to talk a little bit more about too, is we seem to be focusing on the white supremacists 
as opposed to the people who we would see as quote unquote benign racist, and which is actually yeah, which I think are the majority. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think that uh, when I was young, I used to love the Clint Eastwood movies, yeah. Dirty Harry, etc. And one of his movies was uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. <laughs> Yeah. And in that movie, so let me talk about what is the good. The good thing is that after the, 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 the lynching of George Floyd in May, everybody's talking about systemic racism. And that is actually good for us because it gives us a space to advance a structural reading of race stuff. And let's be honest, James, we are being at this trying to fight the monster of racism is about bad apples. I'm like, God darn. It's not the good apples. It's uh, everybody's in the in the apple business of racism, yeah. Okay, uh, so that's the good part. The bad part is that people use the term and they don't know what the hell they're talking about. So think about Joe Biden during the campaign saying the police suffers from systemic racism, and immediately put in the caveat, but most police officers are not racist. Mm -hmm. which means he doesn't understand the systemic component, which means the way that police officers are trained, selected, hmm? uh, their culture they have, their uh, unions, all that guarantees that even black and Latino officers engage in racialized policing, which explains why, if you look at the data, uh, having more black and Latino officers doesn't decrease uh, police brutality because we can be whipped <laughs> by our own people, yeah? yeah. So the, the use of, in terms of use of lethal force, black and brown officers are as likely as, as brutalize us as white cops. Yeah, that's a really good point because in Los Angeles, the police force is predominantly brown. Yeah, we still have this problem in L.A., you know, and so on. So, yeah, so if for people who really don't understand, you know, systemic racism, how would you explain it to them? I have been since the pandemic began, and I'll tell you the long story. I'm long-winded always, so <laughs> I started writing an article for a newspaper, and I thought it was, you know, sometimes you, you produce something you think is the shit. So I'm like, oh, this article is... Is going to make me somebody. <laughs> and, the title, and the title was Systemic Racism is You. Mm. And I wrote this thing. I edited the stuff. I shared with people. Hey, give me feedback. I added a little bit of personal narrative, which is what the media wants. They want us to say, oh, I have been suffering racism, you know, etc. Yeah? I did all that I was supposed to do. It was rejected by almost every newspaper. I sent it to your Times. I sent it to the Times. <laughs> Nothing. Yeah. And then I'm like, yeah. man, what's going on? And then I realized the notion of systemic racism is you. For white folks, mm -mm. they use the term, but the, let me go back to the good, the bad, and the ugly. The ugly is that we seem to be regressing to the notion of racism is the bad apples in a new way. So now it is about white supremacy, white nationalism. And then if you tell them, I agree, 
It's white supremacy. It's all of you living in segregated communities. It's all of you owning, having a, a more wealth than us, etc. It's all, it's, it's the entire white team producing practices to reproduce privilege for white folks. And they're like, uh, dear professor, no. It's about the bad people. It's a, didn't you see how they stormed the Capitol? Like, yep, I was watching them. And by the way, why, why did your white police officer didn't kick the shit out of them when they were going in? Had it been black and brown people? Lots of black and brown people would have been killed. Yeah. But race also is a sort of a family. So they see another white person, they're like, hey, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't come in. For us, no courtesy. We know we experience it in the streets of Los Angeles and Durham, North Carolina. So, yeah. You know, I, I always point out there was one time when white people were willing to open fire on other white people a couple times. You, you can think about the Haymarket rebellions way back when, you know, and then you could also think about Kent State. You know when they were protesting the Vietnam War, right? But it seems but, like but, but, that the Kent State case. Anytime that white people sort of become black-like in politics, whatever, that's when you get it. The the, the rioting in the Capitol was still white, yeah. yeah, yeah. So actually, as we now know the FBI has been telling everyone who is listening, like, "Hey, we have a problem in law enforcement." The, the white nationalists and traditional races have been infiltrating and working with these people for a long time. And someone did an investigation just three, four years ago, just on the stuff that police officers post and discover all kinds of racist, uh, sexist, homophobic stuff that police officers post publicly. This is not private behavior. This is public, publicly shared information in Facebook and the like. Yeah. And when you talk about systemic racism, see, you would think that if you posted things like that, you'd be fired. Right. But no, you're not fired. They kind of support it. Hell, you have people who are captains, you know, uh, in police forces and the heads of police forces who are saying and posting things like that. Yeah. So. Yeah, because it becomes free speech. It becomes free speech for them. Racism is a free speech, according to some people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, people are arguing that Trump shouldn't have been kicked off of Twitter. And I have to point out, you do know Twitter is a private yeah. entity that has a, you know, right. signed a contract with it, you know, with them in the very beginning. We just always push, yes, we'll follow the Twitter rules, but we don't look at what the Twitter rules are, right? That's not really a free speech issue. It's the government that wasn't supposed to be able to curtail right. your free speech and stuff like that. But I, I got another question for you, right? These recent events that have happened lately, have they kind of shown the face of who we should be looking at as the real enemies, you know, as far as the country is concerned? Yeah, I think that that is the quandary for us in the next four, perhaps eight years, which is, on the one hand, as I already told you, it's not that we should ignore the Boogaloo Boys, the Oath, what is the name of that group? The Oath, Oath Keepers. Yeah. Oath, all kinds of strange <laughs> groups out there. The Southern Law Poverty Center keeps a track of all of them. And these sort of uh, white supremacist groups have been growing, not due to Trump. They go back 15, 16 years ago. Yeah? As soon as white people, particularly the, the white masses, yeah? the, the, working, the white working class and the, the poor whites, as soon as they felt that they were getting a little bit close to us, they started defending 
in a more systematic way, quite interesting. Mm. It's interesting because it's not that they are really, you look at the data on anything, education, wealth, income, unemployment, advantage white, by any category, right. by, by class, yeah? But for the white masses, a little bit of, okay, they used to be 30% better than us in terms of income, and now they may be 25%, and they're like, oh my goodness, that's the end of civilization. Right. White supremacy is gone, yeah? yeah? And they have been in this trip for, for a while, and of course, Trump opened the doors for them to be legit, and white supremacy became, as he said, now, what is wrong with nationalism? Yeah? And right. given the history of the term in the U.S., he should know better. But of course, he himself has a, his own historical demons, yeah, that we can all that we all knew before he was elected president. So, so that is the quandary now that that we are going back to a limited way of thinking about racism as bad people, bad actors, and in that process, the the I'm a good person type of racialized whites who right. may not use the N-word unless they get drunk or are in a very specific moment. Yeah, they still use it. Yeah, yeah they, they, they still <laughs> want to fight. It may not be 24-7, but you know, we all know that you know, a little bit, you push them a little bit and they are like, hmm. Anyway, so they am a good person type white. I, ain't, I don't use the N-word. I have a sign in my back saying Black Lives Matters, even <laughs> though I live in an all-white neighborhood. I have another sign said I tolerate everybody, but the neighborhood is, you know, is white bread neighborhood. So those whites, I think, are still more influential, more significant, more meaningful for the reproduction of systemic white privilege. Yeah? After all, racism as a system, much like, like capitalism or patriarchy, no system of domination can depend on randomness. Yeah? You cannot depend on having a few yahoos doing stuff. You need to have systematic ways of reproducing privilege on race or class or gender. Otherwise, your domination will always be contingent. And what you want to have is habitual, consistent domination. Yeah, I mean, those, that brings up really good points because... It's not this small group, I believe, also white supremacists, okay, who are who are the problem. It's the larger group of what people love to think of as benign racists who support yeah. these white supremacists all the way throughout within systemic racism. Because um, it's the white supremacists themselves don't own the news networks, right? But it is white supremacy being spoke about in coded ways on many of these news networks. And MSNBC just recently got on the Black Lives Matter train. Okay, but I really think that it was an anti-Trump train that they got on and they'll jump off. They jumped off that train during the election, kind of blaming the Black Lives Matter stuff for why they lost House seats and so on. Like they kind of wanted to go back to that status quo before Trump, you know. Yeah, that, that, that is a danger of the moment that for good reasons, and I'm going to be honest with with, uh, with your audience. Please do, man. Please, always, we talk real shit Biden. here. Yeah, I voted for Biden and Harris even though I know that they will disappoint me big time, and I know that we will have to fight them too, as we did with Obama, as we did with Clinton, as we did with every Democrat since the 1960s, yeah? Uh, but at the same time, let me be honest, I would have voted for a cucumber. 
over Trump. Oh, man, that's true. Trump had to go. Trump had to go. Period. Period. I would have voted for Johnny Walker. Hey, but Johnny Walker is good. If Johnny Walker, if it would have been Trump, Johnny Walker, and Biden and Harris, you know what? It would have been hard for me to support Biden because my boy, my boy is good. <laughs> but then the, the problem is this. Okay, so we have Biden, and people are, are tired of the four years of Trump. And let's be honest, Trump was 24-7 every second doing something, you would wake up and like, guess what? Trump did this and like, what? This guy is crazy. And then next day, guess what? He did worse, yeah? So people got tired and people are now thinking about, we need to return to normal business, to normal stuff. The problem for you and I, for the, the black and brown masses in the country is this. Normal business is whiteness as usual. And whiteness as usual was what brought mass incarceration, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Although Trump really hit us hard, let's be honest, all the data on wealth inequality, income inequality, police brutality, discrimination in the labor market, discrimination while doing anything black or brown in America happened before Trump. So therefore, returning yeah. to business unusual, returning, re returning to a normal life is returning to, returning to normal white supremacy. Yeah, I mean, if you really think about it, all Trump did was break your code of racism without racist, you know? He was just out loud racist while he did many of the same things that Republicans and Democrats had been guilty of doing. Although every now and then he tried. He tried to keep it together. So he would say, I'm the least racist person, <laughs> which is like, hey, man, let me tell you something. You need to go to white night school, and there they will tell you that the correct way of saying this is I'm not a racist. Because if you say I'm the least racist person, you're acknowledging you have some racism. Yeah. So the best strategy is say I'm not a racist at all, okay? Repeat after me. I am not a racist, but. <laughs> next, next one. So my best friends are black. <laughs> <laughs> it's absolutely true man. so okay who is more dangerous for the reproduction of systemic racism in your opinion to be controversial but it is exactly what I'm working on right now uh, on a paper entitled what makes systemic racism systemic the more dangerous component of the white group for the reproduction of systemic racism is the people you call the benign races. It is our colleagues who are like, I voted for Obama twice. Oh, and I voted for Kamala Harris. I love Kamala. I the, love them. I love also the older ones who say, I marched with King, you know? I, you know, <laughs> you know what? I, I I once made a joke in a presentation, pissed off a lot of people because I said, you know what? Based on the number of white people who tell me that I, I marched with Dr. Martin Luther King, yeah. that march probably was like 20, 30 million people because all kinds of whites, even those who <laughs> probably were like, hey, you are 10 years old, you could not have been in the march. No, no, no. You're not. You're not. <laughs> yeah. All kinds of yeah. races. Yeah. They want credit for taking walk with a black man is what they really uh -huh. want. 
they, they march in, the, in a rally and that is like, I'm free. I got my, I'm not a racist <laughs> out of jail card because I marched for two hours in this. And it was sunny. It was hot. I even got burned. Okay. So I, I think that the, then the average uh, regular white folks are more important for reproduc the production of the system. Of course, I'm not making a moralistic claim because for me, the reproduction of the system doesn't depend on bad actions. It depends on following the dominant racial script of a period. So it could have been Abraham Lincoln compared to the average quote unquote racist of the 19th century was a liberal racist. But we know Lincoln, we read his vision. He didn't believe in equality. He believed that white people should be assigned the position of superiority, as he said in the speech, uh, uh, in the debate with uh, Douglas of uh, what, 1858, I think. So therefore, it is the actions and inactions of regular white folks in making decisions about neighborhoods, about schools, about friendships, about uh, church going, about everything. Yeah? And of course, when you say this to white people, they tell me, but you guys also do. I'm like, yeah, but it's not symmetrical. Because in my case, it's not that I truly have options in terms of neighborhoods, because there is this thing called residential segregation, and there is this thing called redlining, and then there is this thing called uh, 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 steering by realtors. Yeah, realtors taking us to only black areas or Latino areas, or in the case of whites too, oh, you need to see this place. It's in Bel Air. That's where you need to live. I like, I want to be in Bel Air. I'm like, no, you don't look like a resident of Bel Air. Say, so what, what, what do you mean? I got the money, honey. Yeah, but you don't have the color. Uh, they'll tell you, you wouldn't like it in Bel Air, right? Well, <laughs> uh, I would probably be killed. <laughs> they, they would be calling the police. They would be calling the police and me, you know, every day. I'm like, hey, uh, there is a Negro-looking person. He sounds strange. He has an accent, but he, he black. <laughs> and he's around. He's trying to enter. Oh my goodness! He entered a big house. Can you believe it? He yeah. must be stealing shit left and right. Happened to Skip Gates, right? It literally happened to him. And Skip, yeah. Skip, God bless him. But you know what was his response? I mean, elite black status gives you some silliness, yeah. So his response was like, "You don't, you don't know the kind of Negro you are messing with." For most of us, we know that in a regular in an interaction with a police officer, if you do that, you might be killed. So therefore, you try to control yourself, and then you put a good fight afterwards because dead people. <laughs> are not good fighters, yeah? And we have seen case after case after case. Look at the Philando Castillo. I mean, literally, he just made the mistake, and it was a mistake. He's talking to the officer respectfully. And he makes the mistake of telling him, officer, I just want to tell you that I have a gun. And if you look, watch the video, he's immediately telling him, I have a permit. The police officer only heard you have a gun. It took the police officer from listening to that to killing him about 4.5 seconds. Yeah. He, he went from, I'm concerned because I'm stopping a black person to, wow, danger, danger, danger. And he killed him, you know. You know, that brings up a good point because I want to tell you, honestly, since we're on sociology, I will always be a black man first 
before I'm ever a sociologist, right? And that fucking yeah. pisses me off, you know? It is because our students, I mean, our colleagues can be, I'm a, I'm a professor, I'm like, you're a white professor. No, you and I are professors. I'm like, no, you know that I'm not a professor. When you were recruiting me, you probably were not looking at me as a professor. You were saying, we need a minority person because we're in Los Angeles and we need some some black and brown people, blah, blah, blah. So, and our students know, I mean, I, I wish I could just walk like you. I wish I could just be a regular sociologist, but this is independent of you. This is the problem of systemic racism. It's independent of you. So if a police officer stops me and calls me the N-word, and I'm like, excuse me, sir, you may not be aware that according to the Human Genome Project, you and I are species brother. We share 99.9% .9 of the DNA. So therefore, don't call me the N-word because you and I are family. How, how good would that be for you? <laughs> Probably not because the officer's already hot. He can shoot you immediately. Yeah, yeah. So, no, I have to tell my kids, man. It's always yes sir, no sir. You don't, you don't no fight time. with them. You don't argue with them. We'll do that later. Hands, guns are hands on the wheel. Don't make any moves. And now we, unfortunately, the the talk, the talk that we have with our kids, every year we have to expand it. Yeah. So now you have to tell the kid, if you got something on you, don't say it. Don't go and say. Hey, officer, I'm sorry to tell you, I do have a gun, but I have a permit. Now we add it to our list. Mm -hmm. Don't do that. When and after what happened in Columbus, Ohio, that he went out and he had a phone, a cell phone, remember? More, he hid his last yeah? And we got to be clear, a cell phone or a fake gun in the mind of a racialized officer is a gun. Yeah. So you basically have to be totally like, you know, it's, it's disgusting. You got, you cannot be irate. You cannot show equality by saying, look, officer, like, I, I, let me give you one example. Some years ago, there was an accident in my, in my community. They, 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 they hit a, a, the fence in the entrance. So I was going down to check on the incident because I didn't want to pay for that. Someone had to pay for that. All of a sudden, I see three police cars entering our community. And they stop by my mailbox. I have 12 acres of property, so I'm far from my mailbox. I am like good 200 feet away. The police officer stops, gets out, and tells me, what's up, man? <laughs> Immediately, what's up, man? Yeah. That's not the language a police officer should use yeah. with a citizen. Yeah. How you doing, sir? Yeah, no. So I, I, I mustered my, and I was dressed as a professor, you know, but for, for white people, we're never professors, though. Right. But I'm dressed good, and I'm like, oh, I better put my best English, man. So I'm like, okay. Uh, well, officer, I'm here investigating the accident. I'm like, oh, we cleared that, that, that up. So, and then he tells me, where do you live? Pause. Where do you live, sir? The sir sounded strange. He's like, a, okay. First I was man, I am now sir. But the sir sounds like he wants to call me a name. And then I told him, you know, humor is important for me, but humor can be dangerous for your life. So I told him, 
You're in the mailbox, man. Check the number. It's in front of you. I thought it was a great joke. <laughs> he got really serious and repeated, this time in a slightly angrier tone. Where do you live, sir? And in a nanosecond, I realized, wow, I've been racially profiling my own, can I, can I curse? In my own fucking driveway. In my own fucking, I'm like, what the? And I'm like, all that in a nanosecond. At the same time, I'm like, and at the time I was writing a paper on race, race, humanism, civil rights, and all the kind of discourses of humanism, basically saying that those, those discourses never included us. And I'm like, okay, should I exercise my civil rights and tell the guy, get the hell out of my property? Probably not a good idea. So the guy is about to ask me another question. All of a sudden, a black officer comes from the car behind. He jumps, looks at the white officer and tells him, he's not the, and he stops and tells me, sir, we are here in official police business. To make the, it's a long story, I'll give you the short version. The accident was a neighbor of mine had hired two black folks to be his day laborers. He went out to get money to pay them. On the way out, he was crushed by another car. So the day laborers went to the big house. And in the big house, the maid told them, if you come up the driveway, I will call the police on you. They, and they basically were like, call the police. We need to get paid. So they went up. As soon as they went up, she called the police. So the police was looking for a black person suspicious black person who had challenged a white, a poor white woman who had told them, don't you dare come up the driveway. So they confused me with the day laborers. But shows on an economic standard, these two people are equal. But on a racial standard, they're absolute. On a racial standard, I'm a professor at Duke and that idiot uh, white woman, I'm not going to use the language of the South, but they have a name for poor <laughs> whites in the South. Yeah. So that person, in the eyes of the police, was my superior, right. and I should oblige yeah, to absolutely. her. And they're defending absolutely. her. The thing that also pisses me off about this was what happened at the Capitol is some of these benign racists are the ones who kind of believe this whole idea that, you know, this is like similar to what happened in Black Lives Matter. Or it's the same, they'll say, that, that happened in Black Lives Matter. And it's not the same at all. You know, I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit. Well, okay. in terms of, we talk it briefly on the response. <clears throat> so obviously the police, uh, in part because many of them were in in support of the <clears throat> of the riot, yeah, of the takeover of the capital. So therefore, they allow them. Uh, uh, maybe maybe in a month or two, we learn that some of them opened doors or gave them maps or told them, "Hey, Nancy Pelosi is here." Jim Clyburn, the representative from South Carolina, said the following in an interview. He said. I have two offices. One is in the rotunda, where all of them congregated. None of them went to check me in that office. But they did go to my office, which is very hard to locate. And then the journalist doing the interview says, you are right. 
your office doesn't have your name. And like, I know, it's in the third floor, hidden, whatever. So he was saying, this is the day after the, 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 the takeover. He says, something is fishy here. How come they knew my office? Someone must have told them because my office is not easy accessible and it's not listed, etc. That's the thing. You're comparing vandalism and theft to actual insurrection and possibly murder. I mean, I don't know what they would have done if they would have found Nancy Pelosi, you know, or Mike Pence or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or heaven forbid, Ilhan Omar, you know, and so on. I, I don't know how that would have turned out. But there's a there's a broad difference there. And it's, this is like this false equivalency they try to make. Almost, I don't know what if they're trying to bring down Black Lives. Well, they're probably trying to bring down Black Lives Matter while raise up the rioters at the same time. Hey, they are still bullshitting, saying this is Antifa. I'm like, man, we saw it. We got the video. It's not Antifa. This is your, your folks, yeah? And it's not only, it's obviously, it is saying, the, the part that we don't have clearly is this. The composition of the mob. The media is focused almost anally on Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, Boogaloo Boys, militia people. And I'm not saying we should not track them and know whether or not they organize a more systemic plot. But as sociologists, I want to know who else was there. And I submit to you that most likely of the thousands of people who went to the rally, and then the thousands, because it's not, it wasn't like 100 people, yeah? It was at least visually, I, I would guesstimate, three, four, five thousand 5,000 people out there. They cannot be all traditional white nationalists, yeah? So most of them were Trump supporters who have drunk the Kool-Aid, yeah? Believing that, hey, they, st they, they stole the election, Biden is illegitimate, blah, blah, blah. And therefore, we need to know that with a bit more, we, we need to have clarity. Yeah? I've been trying to recruit students of mine to do this kind of work, and I wonder why they don't want to do it. Yeah? They are like, Eduardo, it's not the pandemic. He's like, I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, do I am teaching for the first time in 10 years a political sociology class in the fall, and there's a party that's, that's kind it. of hoping we're still teaching online. <laughs> you know, that could be it's dangerous, man. Of course, you and I know this, the ebb and flow of race talk. I started teaching, the first time I taught the sociology class was uh, when George Bush was president. And it was horrible. At the time, people didn't want to take a sociology course. They thought it was a waste of their time. Why are we doing sociology? is meaningless, etc. Then Clinton was elected, and all of a sudden people are like, hey, I need to learn this stuff. I'm like, Okay, good. Then W came and we went back to the, hey, I don't want to deal with this stuff. This is reverse racism, blah, blah, blah. So it was tough. The eight years of W were bad for us. Then Obama came and people are like, I want to, oh, I voted for Obama. I support him. I love black people. I don't want them to be around me, but I love them. Some of my best friends are black. I don't know their names, but I know they are my best. <laughs> never been to their houses. They never been to my never house. house. I don't know what they do. I just know that they they dance so well. Right. They are rhythmical people, and their food. Oh, it's beautiful food. Yeah. Anyway, so um, so we have been we have been here before. I think that for a short while, we are good <laughs> because 
Biden won, and the systemic, the, the George Floyd moment has given us some leverage. I, I, I'm going to lie, I made some money out of, out of the thing, you know, because everybody's like, hey, prof, prof, professor, can you talk about this? I'm like, I'm going, I can't talk, but it's going to cost you because this is work. How much? Well, how much you pay your white people? Okay, that's it. I don't want no racism. So if you pay white people this much, kachin, kachin, I want the same. Equality is something beautiful. But uh, the, the question for us is, how long will these romance last? How long will white folks be you know, at peace and the benign races for a while, you know, you know, in, our, in your unit, in my department, in my university, everybody's looking for, we need to hire more black people. I'm like, we have been telling you that forever. And now is that you are listening, yeah? So every president is doing a, a statement about systemic racism, the legacy of racism in the institution, blah, blah, blah. For me, I told my president in a speech, I, I, I presented before the community, I like, I want you to put your money where your mouth is. Statements are beautiful, but I'm going to check how much money you put. And if Duke, which is a rich university, comes back with the, we're going to put $5 million, I'm going to tell you, that's some bullshit. Because $5 million will not begin doing, we need reparations. Okay? And you guys have been using the white supremacy gig in universities to put yourself at the top of the helm, etc. And you have been hiring all kinds of mediocre white people. And then whenever you hire one of us, you are like, but are you qualified? I'm like, yes, damn it, I am. You, if you are black and got your PhD and survived white supremacy in departments and are still alive, you must be good. Now, do you ask? I tell my, my colleagues whenever they come with that nonsense of qualification, I'm like, you know how many, many mediocre white people are in the academy? The test of civilization for us is this. I am willing to admit that among black and brown people, there are some really talented people. The average person is average, and we have some dots. The test for whites is this. Are you willing to admit the same? Are you willing to admit that the average white professor is just so-so? You got some good people, and you got some people who are like, Man, we made a mistake when we hired Johnny. Mary's not as good as we thought. Yeah. You know, I have to explain this to white people in this way that to let them know that I'm not just talking about your privilege. I'm willing to talk about mine. And I bring up the fact that when you look at when Hillary Clinton lost to Donald Trump, right, this is an argument women have made for a long period of time. Whether you liked Hillary or not, okay, by our standards of politics, Barack Obama had said she was the most qualified person to ever run for president. Yeah, because Secretary of State, a senator, and the wife of a president. No one had those qualifications before. She loses to the least qualified dude to ever run for president. You know, And this is what women talk about, right? I'm willing to accept, hell yeah, dude, it is a man's world. But yeah, systemic racism goes throughout our profession, throughout the world. Right now, they're talking about in the NFL, they only have two two black football coaches, and people think, why is that important? Right? You've got you supposedly the people who work in your companies are the ones who know your companies best, and they're the ones who should be promoted. If you look at the NFL the same way, you just promoted some dude to coach at Detroit that is less qualified than exceptional offensive and defensive coordinators in the league. Exceptional. All right. 
And this dude has hardly any qualifications and he gets hired, right? And in academia, the same shit happens. All the time. You see it all the time. And of course, the, the story is deeper. I'm going to use the academic example because that's the one that you and I label in, yeah? So go back to the situation that we deal with white supremacy in the, in the benign way that it is sort of crafted in the academy. No one called us the N-word, but we're treated as second-rated scholars, yeah? And we're not incorporated in games. We're not incorporated in the, in the papers. We're not asked to collaborate with faculty, etc. And somehow we managed to finish a PhD. And some of us may have a publication. And then we apply for jobs. And then you have white bread candidate who work with Dr. Professor White, White, White. And Dr. Professor White, White, White gave her three papers. Hey, take this paper. I don't need it. And putting a grant and allow her to do all kinds of beautiful things. And you and I know because we, we, we were in the classes with her. She's not that good. <laughs> she's not that good. She thinks she is, but she's not. But she has three papers and you have one. And the three papers are in the American Social Review, the American Journal of Bullshit, and the American Journal of who knows what. And then our paper is in the Journal of Black Stories. Right. And here comes our colleagues and like, you know what? I really want to hire this Eduardo guy, but you know, objectively, come on, three papers in top journals of sociology, one paper in the Journal of Black Studies. So objectively, I'm sorry to tell you, we got to accept the black candidate who is significantly more qualified than the black candidate. So they stop thinking about the impact of race while you are in life and where you are in, in grad school. And then that continues as we move on. You get the job. You are the only black person in Unisius. You are like, what's up? When I got my first job in Michigan, <laughs> my, my, my mentors in Wisconsin, white, white folks, good whites, trying to do right. One of them told me, hey, Eduardo, one of the ways you develop networks is this. You need to have lunch with your colleagues. So, and I say, how, how do I do that, professor? I'm like, at lunch, stand by in the hallway and someone will invite you to have lunch. So my first week, man, I'm like an idiot. So I'm in there at noon and people go, you know, white people go left and right. And I'm like, and they're like, so guess what? After a week, I decided if I want to eat, <laughs> I got to eat alone. Or let me eat with a few black faculty in the department. That's it. So I ended up having to eat a lot of my lunches alone or with Professor Don Deskins, rest in peace. Yeah. And look, look, I'm going to say this too. We're not saying all white people are created equal, right? There is variation. Oh, yeah. By the way, same with the black team. There are black people. Oh, that, hell yeah. There are black people that are my enemies, big time. And they parade being anti racist. They are probably people, all kinds of shit. There are variations, obviously. Uh, I have written about that in the in that great book, Raising with a Racist, that still sells for $29.95 commercial. Um, <laughs> I do have a chapter saying that anywhere between 8-10% of uh, white folks are sort of white progressives. Of course, among the white progressives, there are also tonalities and levels. There are people who are John Brown's type people, and there are some people who are like, okay, Abraham Lincoln, like, you know, yeah, you're going to give me freedom. 
but you still believe I'm secondary. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I, I'm a fan of John Brown, not as big a fan of Lincoln, you know. But, you know, like yeah. you bring yeah. up something, too. I always tell people that the only thing I hate more, the hate more than the well-meaning white liberal, okay, is the bougie black or brown Latino. Right. Because often that bougie black or brown Latino become the poster child for there is no racism. They do. I have said in public meetings that one of the bigger problems for us in the next 20, 30 years is addressing the, the, that, that problem of the, the false positive. Yeah. I call it the false positives. They got the right color, but the wrong politics. They are like bad chocolate. It's chocolate ice cream, but it's like, damn, this doesn't take like no chocolate ice cream. And increasingly in corporate America, in the academy, they find these sort of sanitized uh, black and brown folks who then do us in from within. They get the accolades, they get the promotions, and then they discipline us. Unfortunately, in the short term, we haven't developed the language and politics to fight them. Because how do we fight when they say, oh, James, you want a black person? Here, Clarence, Clarence, come here. Yeah. Here is Dr. Clarence Thomas. How do you like it? Here, black, dark. Can you give me a liberal white? Because <laughs> I prefer the liberal white to Clarence. Absolutely, you know? yeah. So that's a big challenge. How to address the false positive? in the next 20, 30 years. And so far, honestly, we don't have the politics for that. Right. You know, um, when you brought up this stuff about academia too, it reminds me of when I was a grad student. Uh, uh, Mike Messner, was, who's a white dude, who is my me uh, my mentor, is one of the good white dudes. I mean, I'll ride and die with yeah. Mike, because Mike ride, rode and died with me, right? So one day I'm at a conference at ASA, and this dude walks up to me and he sees my badge. It says University of Southern California, graduate student. And he tells me, uh, he doesn't know if I have any publications or not. And I'm going to tell you truthfully, at that point, I had none because I just wanted to work at community college, right? And so I'm, where I'm working now, right? But he walks up to me and he says, hey, we got an opening coming up uh, next month and stuff and in South Carolina somewhere and stuff. And I'm like, oh, really? Or North Carolina was. And he's like, you know, you should apply for it. And I'm like, well, I'm not really interested in relocating and you don't have a large Latino population. My studies have to do with black Latino. He goes, no, we, he's, we have a large Latino population. He even sent me statistics later, right? And said, how about you just come down for a visit, right? So at that point, I emailed Mike Messner and I said, Mike, can we just have a quick talk about me being the endangered panda and every zoo wants one? <laughs> <laughs> it is tough, man. I remember where was it? Like uh, when I was desperate, I have been desperate. If you're black, oh, I'm black Latino as me. I'm a I'm a black and a black Puerto Rican. Right. Uh, you're never safe, even when you are former president of the American Sociological Association. It means nothing in the streets of America, and it still means little, relatively speaking, in the academy. I'm still put down every now and then. Yeah. So whenever I get like high on like, oh, I accomplished something, happens and tells me. I'm still a Negro, man. And being a Negro in the academy, like in life, is being different. Let me say something, too, though. The, it's not just that you're a Negro. You're an unapologetic Negro, too. And that's even worse, you know? So. Yeah, I, I, I should change and be like, hey, man. I, I jokingly, I did this with, you know, Tyrone, Tyrone Foreman. Yeah, so he yeah. and I had our birthday in February. We invited a bunch of people. 
and we decided to play a, <laughs> play a trick on them. And we told them, hey, folks, uh, we invited you here because Heron and I were working on this book. And the title of the book is, and then we, we created a fake uh, book cover. The title of the book is, um, The Problem with Blacks is Blacks. <laughs> and people were like, oh my goodness. And I said, hey man, I'm against the book, but man, they gave us $200,000 advance. <laughs> I'm sorry, man, I and need to retire at some point. It's crazy, man. They offered, it was giving talks, $20,000 per talk. And I'm telling you, man, it's, I'm sorry to do it, but I need the money. So anyway, at some point we said, hey man, we're just kidding. It's a birthday. We are no book. And of course we would never publish a book. The problem with blacks is black. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. But you would. I mean, you would really be the darling. Oh, you would make by the way, you don't need to read anything. You don't need to cite anything. Just chapter one, black people need to stop complaining. Chapter two, pull your pants up. Yeah. Chapter three, no more Ebonics. <laughs> um, I mean, you'll make like a bandit. Maybe, after, you know what, what, after, maybe I should do it for two years, make some four, few million dollars and then come back after. <laughs> Something like that. Because the money will be crazy. You know, when I was at Pierce College, one of the first talks I ever did on my own campus was uh, a talk entitled, There's Nothing White About Getting an Education. Right. And I pointed out, you don't have to change because you got an education. Right. You know, we do code switching all the time. And of course, to get certain jobs. But once you in, OK, once they can't get rid of you, you can be you. And that's what I'm doing now. But so see, I was just talking real shit. Would I have done this when I was still going through tenure? <laughs> Probably not. It was hard. Yeah, yeah, I know. The funny thing is that you're still, let's be honest. So I'm always into my freedom process. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I have become a little bit freer throughout the years. Although early on, I was free also because I was stupid. Yeah? I didn't think about the consequences of my behavior. I remember in Michigan making a comment. I gave a talk <laughs> on methodology, basically saying that the methodology in sociology was racialized. Yeah? And I started with a quote by Max Weber. Say, okay, Max Weber wrote in the logic of objectivity in social sciences that we have to be so clear in our methods that even a Chinese would understand it. And one of my colleagues in the panel was a Chinese professor. He didn't like at all, even though Weber's uh, 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 anti-Chinese position, now there are books on that, yeah? It's clear that he was a racist uh, against Chinese, against all kinds of people, yeah? And he, after that, everybody, you know, you know that you, you are in trouble when every white person who never talks to you sends you an email. Eduardo, can we do lunch? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, sure. And I go to lunch and they are just like, you call me racist. And I'm like, hey, hey, first of all, this happened to me in my office. One of them right. comes to my office, tells me, you call me racist. I'm like, okay, first of all, you're in my office. You have to lower your voice. And he's like, are you threatening me? I'm like, I'm not threatening you. I'm informing you that you're in my office and you will respect me or else we take this discussion outside. Mm. This is my, I think, fourth year. And all of a sudden, the guy 
starts tearing up. And there is something that we, I mean, for all the stuff we have taken from white people, and they're afraid that we're going to pay them back, yeah? They're afraid if we give them equality, they're going to give us a shit. They're going to say, I'm going to enslave you. I'm going to steal shit from you. I'm going to rape him. No, no, we're going to do that. So what did I do? Even though I had him at the point where I could stop him and make him cry, I started talking about the weather. Oh, it's cold out there. Allow him to recover. He recovered. And then he told me, I still want to do lunch. Do you mind if we go in the next few days? I'm like, sure. Wednesday is good. I go to lunch with him. <laughs> in the lunch, he regressed to whiteness as usual, and he gave me the business. You call me racist, you in a restaurant. In a restaurant. Wow. Talking loud and like, hey man, keep it together, keep it together, keep it together. Yeah. No, you know, that's the thing I also try to tell people is that's how I can tell if you're one of the good ones or one of the problematic ones, right? Because I have friends who are white who will listen about white supremacy, white supremacy, white privilege, white privilege, and the only thing they're going to do is nod their head. You know, they're going to nod their head. You're right. You're right. You know, they might even stay. But the average average white and the average white sociologist and the average white faculty, when you talk about white supremacy, after my ASA presidential address, people came to my wife to tell her, you know what? Eduardo Colos, racist. And she's like, what? He didn't say that. Said, yes, he did. And all of us white people knew he was calling us racist. Yeah. And she's like, actually, his structural perspective is not about individuals, it's about collectives, stuff, and he doesn't use the even the term racist, because using that individualizes the collective problem. By the way, he was talking about emotions, racialized emotions. I'm like, no, 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 no. I heard him loud and clear. He was calling us all racist. And he doesn't appreciate we suffer a lot too. Oh, God. So in general, you know, it, it, that for me was surprising, to be honest, the suffering part, because he's like, are you, are you, are you out of your mind? You're going to call... Suffering, you want to talk, first of all, I recognize the suffering of poor whites. But suffering needs to be analyzed if you're a sociologist comparatively. So whenever you tell me poor whites have suffered, I'm like, what about poor blacks? Yeah. At every category, middle class, I mean, you and I are professors, we have our white professors. Right. Compare their life, her right in the academy is totally different because our experience is racialized downward, whereas theirs is racialized upward. You know how many mediocre whites that should have been kicked out of the business remain and they are allowed to be, okay, you're going to change your land, you're going to be now a distinguished lecturer, or you're going to be in the writing lab, or you know what, you stopped publishing 20 years ago. Let Let me make you associate dean of nothing. So whiteness is beautiful, man. You get you get on no matter what. Whereas in our case, man, you make one mistake out. Yeah. Out. You better be really exceptional and not too controversial. No, that is the ideal if you want to move uh, up. If you are going to be James or Eduardo, you you keep it real, but you also pay the consequences. So uh, you and I, in different ways and moments. I paid concert. I mean, I'm doing good. But you know what? If I were a quiet Negro, 
I, I, I actually jokingly have said in, in presentations, if I were a, a quiet Negro and I were like, you know, uh, sort of, I, I could become Captain Diversity. I'm like, hey man, I'm black, I'm Puerto Rican. And if you pay me enough money, I'll say I'm gay too. And that way you don't need to do anything. Hire me, I'm Captain Diversity. And I come for everything. Yeah, they count you off in the little in the little boxes. You count me three times. I'll, I'll sign documents that all of you are good people, that you're not racist. Just pay me on the side, $100 per certificate. I mean, I'll be you. I mean, it's horrible, but you know what? I'm, I'm being facetious, but some people do a version of that. Right. And they get paid well. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know. Uh, this is the thing I like about talking with you, Eduardo. You know, because we've had these kind of conversations, especially over drinks, right? It brings up to something that I always think about too: this bullshitness about collegiality, too. You know, I mean, collegiality seems sometimes this way of them protecting themselves against like these. These, conver these controversial conversations, you know? I, I had people on my campus, one in particular, and see who attacked me on, on stage and stuff, verbally and stuff, blew a horn at one of my talks, sent emails to, to her students saying that, um, that you know, that uh, I speak in abonics and that if you wanna get a degree in Inca basket weaving or feminist poetry of the 1400s, or banjo playing, which was the reference to black people, right, and so on, then, then that's your fault, you don't get a job, and so on. And when I took this to, you know, administration, they, they asked her to apologize. She refused to apologize to me, okay, at that point. But that was like the only consequence. And there was more this idea that I should just keep this quiet, you know? Quiet. Yeah. Don't raise head. Yeah. 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 Equality, equality is a hard thing for, for them because, again, and, and the issue is that the expectation of symmetry, yeah, they do things to us that because they're on top of the game, they don't see as problematic. Yeah. Whenever we reciprocate and show them some color, every now and then, you yep. know, for the most part, I tell my students, jokingly, I tell my graduate students, I'm like, I'm going to teach you the most important skill you need in the academy and perhaps in America. And I said, do, do as I do. <laughs> you got to be smiling all the time. Because yeah. the moment you don't smile, people are like, what's going on with James? What did I do? Is he mad with me? Yeah. Or so you can get have passionate a about something, I'm angry. Then you are, he's angry black man. You have to be always happy. You got to be like, how are you doing? How are your daughters? Oh, oh great, whatever. And the moment that, and so don't talk about racism. Always be smiling. Say that race is declining in significance <laughs> and that everything will be all right. But the moment you talk about racism is structural, that eh, James is calling me racist. The moment you talk about issues in the department, then you are divisive, yeah? And you're not collegial. Now, they can, the funny thing is, they ignore us 24 7. They don't ever have lunch with us. They don't call us. They don't. Even... <laughs> Some years ago, there was a, a good uh, colleague of mine, um, Latino, who came to my office all discombobulated and, hey man, this happened. Another colleague came to my office to tell me, hey man, are we going to go to the birthday of this white professor? <laughs> 
And he was like, I was not invited. And the professor was, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So he left and he came to my office to tell me. And then he looks at me and like, by the way, Eduardo, were you invited? I'm like, what do you think, fool? If you, who are a lighter Latino, were not invited, well, if you were not invited, you think they would invite me? And then, you know, we have these fantasies in our, so, I, so we started fantasizing, like that movie. Remember that movie, Nine to Five? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, I do, where they fantasize about, you know, doing all kinds of things to the boss, to the sexist boss. So we fantasize, yeah. So we said, hey, man, why don't we go to the birthday and show up with gifts? Mm. Say, hello, we're here for the birthday. Congratulations on your 40th birthday. Looking good for 40. You're looking good. <laughs> so we kept talking all kinds of nonsense. You know, like, hey, man, let, let's be honest. We'll never be. Relax. Let's go have coffee and move on. Oh, so anyway, interestingly, they never are collegial to us. We sort of, we, integration in the academy means we share a space. We have spatial cohabitation. But if integration is a substantive matter that includes more than just being in the same space, we're not integrated. And we know because I don't know about you, I don't come to my office at night because the campus police goes crazy. Excuse me, sir, where are you going? I'm going to my office. Your office? Can you show me five forms of ID? I'm <laughs> like, five, man. And I only have my driver's license and my university ID. I'm like, no, I need more than that, man. <laughs> so so I stopped going to my office because at night, you know, it's not that during the day it's an easy picnic, but at night then we become suspicious. We are like, what is this Negro person doing in my camp? You know, it brings up something else that Mike mentioned about the thing about when I said the unicorn, or not the unicorn, but the endangered panda, right? He, he said something, he said that there are studies that show that black men are more likely to be hired because everybody wants these black men, but he shows that they're least likely to get tenure at the same time, you know, for various reasons, he points out hiring them too early before they're really ready to be out on the market. Um, you know, the extra expectations of people of color, you know, on the campus, they want you on every single committee that's out there, all the students who come to you, as well as that the thing you talked about earlier, the extra scrutiny of your work, that a, a white colleague is going to get tenure for publishing in certain type of journals, but then we can't. And sometimes it's important for us to, to publish in something like Black Studies and so on, as opposed to, you know, you know AJS or something like that. Well, white Journal number 357. Right. right. You're right. Uh, by the way, I want to add that in addition to those things, I think that the fundamental reason why we don't get tenure is Robin DiAngelo wrote a paper on this. Uh, her white fragility book is not on that, but her more empirical work is actually good. And she has this paper on explaining how committees hire and how they evaluate records and how they look at promotion cases, yeah? And if you come, so James was hired with one paper. Miss Karen was hired with four papers. Miss Karen gets to the department, gets support and love by everybody. She's putting grants. She's invited to co-author with people. So after six years, Miss Karen has 12 papers. James came with one paper. 
Nobody helped him at all. He's lone ranger, no support, no love, no nothing. Despite all odds, James is able to put out five more papers. So arguably from one to six, you did well. But then at the end of the day, the committee says, Miss Karen has 12 papers. James has only six. Right. Hello. So either we're going to be serious about the impact of race in society and in the academy and how that affects records, how that affects publications, etc. Which means that those of us in sociology, presumably we study social inequality. Social inequality is not just out there, it's everywhere, including in departments, including in universities, including in how people evaluate. So therefore, how are we going to calibrate things? How are we going to assess things? And what are we doing to make sure that in 10, 15, 20 years, we don't go back and say, you know what? The more things change, the more they seem to stay the same because Dr. Black still has six papers and, and, and Miss Karen still has 12 papers. That is, and, and, and of course, when they deny tenure to James or Eduardo, they say, we love James. He's so affable. He smiles all the time. But objectively, objectivity is something. Huh? Yeah. Objectivity is a white game. And they objectively kill us. And if we are dead, <laughs> we are dead. Killing me softly means I'm still dead. Don't come after you crucify me and say, Eduardo, I'm so sorry I had to vote against you. I like you personally, but it's not about you as a person. It's the record. Your record is inferior to Miss Karen, period. Yeah. You know, um, I, I really appreciate this conversation because I get a lot of, um, I, since I started the podcast, I've got a lot of graduate students of color who have friended me on Twitter, Facebook, uh, you know, gone to my website and stuff like that. And it seems like that's the biggest group of people. I think they need to hear this, right? This doesn't mean, I, I would say, it doesn't mean don't enter academia. Enter it with open eyes. And then when you get into a position where you can change things, you know, be part of that. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Like, I insist on being, you know, uh, black the way I am in the spaces that I am. I insist upon it because that's important. So let, me, so let me make let me make a comment uh, to my brothers and sisters, black brown in the academy and in sociology in particular. Dear brothers and sisters, this is simple. I'm going, I'm trying to speak truth to power. Race matters in everything we do. It matters in sociology. But if you get disappointed because oh I I thought it was different, so therefore I'm going to quit sociology and become a lawyer. I'm going to become a doctor. I'm going to become an architect. I'm going to become an engineer. I'm going to work in NGO. I'm going to do anything while black and brown. Guess what, my brothers and sisters? Race matters in every Preach. career. Choice. Preach, brother. So whatever you do, race will matter. And your job is, whether you are a sociologist, political scientist, doctor, lawyer, architect, or what have you, fight, fight, fight. Understand the, the beast in the in the in your occupation, how it is structured, how it's organized, and then develop solidarities. Yeah, the the, the killer for us, James, is that in the academy they like to hire one of us. Yeah, mm -hmm. we're not racist. We, we we are not racist. We got the panda. We got the big yeah, panda. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
You and I are big brothers. So we got the big panda. That, that panda must count us two. Yeah. And the, and the worst, I'm still talking to, to brothers and sisters, uh, younger brothers and sisters. So the mistake that you make is you go and the first six months are romantic. They love you. Come here, big panda. Give me a big hug. Oh, I love James. I love Lakeisha. I love Jose. And after six months, you're on your own. And then they begin telling you, the problem with James is James. The problem with James is he is not this. He is not that. What you need to do is you develop networks across. If you are the Lone Ranger in your unit, you need to connect with people of color in other units. So you need to talk to them, hear their stories. Because the more you do that, the more you realize the pain you are experiencing that you think is the problem individual situation, all of a sudden it becomes a collective pain. And you are like, you know what? The same bullshit they're telling me in sociology is what they're telling my colleagues in political science, in geography, in economics. So therefore, it is not my problem. It is a white problem. It is the white supremacy thing and it is organized in the academy. It's sort of the killing me softly not the racist, but way in which race matters in the academy. Yeah, yeah, and th that brings up something that you can develop then a create a collective solidarity with these groups and collective strategies on how to deal with those race racism. So absolutely, I agree with you. Let's move back to politics for a second because before you go, and we're almost done, but I want to talk about Biden Harris a little bit more. Now that we have this Biden Harris team, right? Will they fight systemic racism for real? Okay, and. You've talked a little bit about that danger of going back to a normality. Is that kind of where we might be headed? So. They will fight systemic racism for real if we force them to do so. And the issue for us is this. In order for us to be able to get a leg on the problem, we'll have to get back to social movement politics. Electoral politics is a trap, has been a trap for us for forever, yeah? So I'm not saying, young folks, I'm not telling you not to vote. I'm telling you to be strategic in your politics. Politics is like, James, you're going to teach the political science, uh, political sociology course. So politics is not just about voting every four years. Politics has a social movement component that arguably, if we're going to fight systems of domination like patriarchy, capitalism, and racism, you got to get organized because fundamental social change is usually accompanied by social movement politics. So if we want Biden and Harris to deliver on the promises, we need to force them. And we need to help them understand that, let's say that they're going to fight uh, systemic racism in, in the in police departments. If we need to fight against the liberal tendency, which is, we need to train police officers on diversity. And of course, James, you and I will get some money because for if they want to assign my book to the every police officer in the LA Police Department, be my guest. But in truth, even though I would be happy with the money I'll get, let's be honest, that will not change the fundamentals. Neither will uh, training them on, on, on uh, automatic, implicit bias and stuff like that. What we need to do is what you were doing yesterday. Work on 
non-reformist reforms such as defund the police, which means we're going to use some of the money to address the real structural issues affecting the community, plus some of the people who are killed and brutalized by police officers have mental issues. Yeah? Why would a police officer be the per first responder for a, a call saying, hey, my brother is going through a mental uh, lapse. Can you send someone to help? And they said a police officer. Wrong person, yeah? So, so if we want, uh, remember when Obama told us, change, if you want change you can believe in, you got to be part of the process of producing that change. We cannot, I mean, we hope and dream that Biden-Harris will deliver, but hope and dream are not good enough. We need to make sure that along the hope and dream, we the people, we the people of color and our allies are in the streets putting pressure. And the moment they don't deliver on us, we can also tell them, guess what? We voted you in, we can vote you out. Yeah. No reason for the, 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 the time for us to give blank checks to anyone is gone. We're not going to give blank checks to black, white, Latino, Asian American, indigenous politicians. No one. I agree. You know, it brings up something to the, uh, you know, you and I are to the, what would be considered the far left. We're not to the center. Okay. And uh, we have friends in the far left. And I remember when Trump was first running against Hillary Clinton, some friends of mine in the far left said, there's no difference between Clinton and Trump. Bullshit. None of them believed it then. And you could tell because the day that Trump won, there was this. Oh my God! I never oh seen. Oh my goodness! I never seen the. Oh my goodness! I was kidding. I thought you were going to win. No, I never saw a collective depression and shock since 9/11 like that in the United States and around the planet. Right. And that that helps me. Yeah, that that helps me calibrate the comment. Yeah. So when I said that social movement policies are central, I am not saying that we cannot be strategic. Right. So, for example, I supported Obama critically. I supported uh, Clinton, even though it was harder, because I think he's a bit more conservative than Obama. Uh, and as a politician, to be honest, she's not good as a politician. She doesn't know how to connect with people emotionally. And politics is about connecting, and she doesn't connect well with people. She's too rational. Too... She's the opposite of Trump. Trump has no, he's an idiot, but God, he can connect with people big time. Imagine a billionaire sold the white working class the notion that I'm with you, I'm with the people. So this guy is flying in a, three, in a 350 in a airplane. He has gold toilet seats. He owns this. I mean, come on, he's not the people. He's not you. He would never love you or like you. But he talks to them. He validates their, their, their concerns. And that was it. Whereas Hillary, when the comment about, remember the comment about the deplorables? Right. Well, that, that for me sealed her fate. After that leak, is like she's going to lose big time. Because now whites, not only poor whites, because let's be honest, the data is in. All segments of the white community supported Trump in 2016. Yeah. 
Everybody except for, I think that the only subgroup was white women with college degrees. And the, and the level of support was something like 49% for Clinton, 47% for Trump. So it wasn't a, like a landslide, yeah? Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting, too, because I know you've done a, a lot of talk about Latin America and politics in Latin America. And Americans, they, they uh, on the far left, often talk about this concept of revolution. They want revolution. And my mother, she came here. For my mother's white. My black, dad's black. My mother came here in 1956 from Hungary escaping a revolution and she explained what revolution is like as a 12 year old girl right and she's like you don't want revolution you think you want revolution but who are you willing to lose and what are you willing to lose in the process so i think the challenge like you're saying on the far left is we should be pushing for our ideal world and we should be saying hey look no this is not enough but we should also say okay can we create incremental change to push those politicians like Biden and Harris to the left, to give them the political courage to move to the left? You know? And that's what I talk about. I use the term. It's not my term. It is Nikos Poulansas, uh, the great uh, French structuralist. He coined this term of non-reformist reforms as a potential way of slowly but surely moving from a capitalistic society to a socialistic one. Yeah? So that was his, his concern in the early 70s, yeah? So hopefully the last 20, 30 years of history has shown us that revolutions need not be like the Hungary Revolution or the Chinese Revolution, etc. Yeah, You don't need to have a lot of people dying, yeah? Most of them have been mostly peaceful, although massive movements of people against the regime in Puerto Rico, just a few years ago, we took out a governor who was not delivering on the people. And the people were in the street for like what, a, a two weeks until he was forced to quit. And I wonder when that was happening, I was thinking, wow, if the Americans were due to do the same in the US and tell Trump, you're out, man, you're out, you are disgusting, you are like a you're not delivering on the people, so and you're stealing money left and right. You're forcing us to go to your hotels. You go to Mar-a-Lago and then charge the people. Everything, man. This corruption. You got your kids. <laughs> Why is your daughter in your cabin? I mean, this makes no sense. So you're talking about corruption and draining the swamp. The swamp is you, man. You are the swamp man. Oh, absolutely. All he did was change the alligators in the swamp. That's it. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, uh, we talked a lot about some of the things that you think need to be done at this juncture. Is there anything else you want to add that should be done at this juncture in our in our history, in our moment? Well, before I forget that all the people watching this need to check this book. Racing without races. I you know. Look. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm sorry. My problem is not me. Folks, it's not me. My publisher forces me to do this. Okay. <laughs> But, and by the way, you it's know a good the, book, though. I mean, it really is a good book. It's a good book, but even if it's not good, whatever. It's not that white people are going to be selling my book. So literally, I go to airports, I go to the street corners. I'm always like, you check this book? <laughs> no, seriously, I mean, I, I think that the, 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 just to go back to the connection between electoral politics and social movement politics, finding that sweet spot 
between not going ultra leftist and thinking that the revolution is in the corner and that we got to topple the state and that way we'll get to the promised land. So that I don't think is plausible in the 21st century. The traditional moment of revolutions may have, traditional revolutions may have sort of dissipated from history, may have. <laughs> I leave the space for possibilities, yeah? So the sweet spot between that and electoral politics, yeah? How do we combine the, the great uh, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin wrote about this. So Lenin, the communist, wrote about how in certain moments to advance the cause of socialism, the best option was supporting liberals. So in a moment where the option is fascism versus people who support liberal democracy, the radicals ought to support critically liberal democracy to maintain the space for possibilities. A space that we created, yeah? If we are liberal democracy in the US, it's not because rich people were like, oh, I want you people to vote. I want women to vote. I want black people to vote. We the people, we workers, we women, we people of color slowly but surely have been crafting and adding to the democratic experiment, yeah? So the problem issue now, for the issue for us is, how do we continue that path to make sure that we reach that beloved, that the beloved community that, that uh, Martin Luther King talked about? How do we then connect the, the, the radical social movement politics with the liberal electoral poli political game so that we can then get, because revolutions don't pay bills, yeah? <laughs> revolutions don't. Uh, I got three letters yeah. for you, they'll connect it. AOC, okay? All right. That's right. That's right. She's Puerto Rican, man. That's right. Love her. That's right. She's in Congress, man. So here you have an example. She's going to be, an, uh, uh, with all the limitations of, of Bernie and company, it's good to have some people like them in Congress because they are absolutely necessary to keep folks honest because they're not going to take no bull. They are not beholden to any interest. They are not beholden to the political party structure. And therefore, if Biden and Harris get too far on the right and keep moving center right, as Obama did, they will be the ones correcting, saying, no, that is not good for the people. What you need to do is this. And our job will be how to then bolster their standing their efforts by being out there in the streets demanding the end to systemic racism. And the problem of social movement politics usually is that we don't craft policies, yeah? Ideas are not policies. So our job is being in the streets, but then we need to go with specific demands, A, B, C, D, and E. No more than five. <laughs> After five, they're like, ah, too much. <laughs> so give you five big demands, Make sure you have them well-crafted. Leave some space for them to come back and take away a little bit. And that's good. That's politics, yeah? yeah? So that's, but you got to have them. So that's where the Panthers yeah. messed up, right? Because they had the 10-point plan instead of 5-point plan? Yeah, it was 10 points. They should have been 5 points. Right? The Americans can't deal with too many points, right? 5 points are too, too much, man. 5 points. That's a good point. You have two five-point plans instead of one ten-point plan. And they're... That's right. Divide, divide it. Get them first at five. I'm like, hey, I forgot. 
then do You know, you bring up a good point. I just want to back it up with something because I've always believed that the reason why Obama, second term Obama, started sliding to the left a little bit was the 99% movement. I think the 99% movement dragged him to the left, you know, at that point, right? So, and I think that's what we need to do. And, and give us a language. It's funny how movements come and go, yeah? Yeah. I thought that the 1% argument, we are 99% versus the 1%, that that framing was going to stick for longer. And it's funny how things quickly sort of dissipate. So movements usually change. They, they lose in terms of not getting what they have, were demanding, but they win because they open a space and change discourse. I thought, okay, they're not going to, <laughs> the corporate America is not going to be like, hey, you are right. I'm going to give you all the money. You are right. We no longer be the 1%. We're going to give you half our now. But I thought the framing will remain and will be part of our uh, intellectual, cultural, political repertoire. And for the most part, that framing of we are the, the 99% has sort of, even, even Bernie and company are not using that lingo. Uh, and I think that that is uh, problematic here yeah, because if the people in the movement lose their history, they sort of go back to zero and say, how do we do this? I'm like, hey, fools, we did that 20 years ago, yeah? So. Yeah, that's a really also good point. And we're going to bring this to an end, but I just wanted to point out too that I've made the argument with people who say that this generation is the most radical generation in the history of the planet. And I always tell them, did you look at the late 1960s, early 1970s generation? I mean, they were pretty damn radical and probably far radical than this generation. But look what happened to them. And that's where knowing that history is really important because, yeah, you can get co-opted and, and fade away into nothingness and then become a part of the problem in the future if you don't really understand your history and how these things happened. You know what? Let's keep the communication going because at some point after we're out of this stuff, you and I should talk about co-teaching and political sociology course because you don't know this, but my... I was not a race scholar when I was in Wisconsin. Yeah. I repeat for the audience, I was not a race scholar. I was a vulgar Marxist. Vulgar Marxist, don't talk about gender, no race shit. It's all class, man. <laughs> okay. So that was me in grad school, and that meant that my areas of interest were political sociology and development studies. And it wasn't until year four, five in grad school that I'm like, oh shit, this race stuff is deeper. And as you, as a black Puerto Rican, I started sort of reflecting on my own blackness. And any Latino or any Caribbean person listening to this podcast knows what I'm talking about. We don't have a, this curvy space to think and process race in the Americas, yeah? In Latin America or the Caribbean. Doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. It means that there is no space because they keep telling you, we're all Puerto Ricans, we're all Cubans, we're all Dominicans. We don't have race. Race is in the U.S. and South Africa. But anyway, then in my fifth year, I started doing the switchero. And I, but the problem with that switchero was that my original passion in political sociology has sort of, it's still there, yeah? It's still through my work, which is highly political, but I wouldn't mind going back and going back to political sociology 101 and having a discussion of what is the state? What is ideology? 
Let's talk about class consciousness, yeah? And of course, now informed with the race and gender discourse that we all have acquired in the last 20, 30 years, I think that if you and I teach a course, it will be the shit. We got a lot of students and, you know. Dude, let's do it. Anyway, let's do it. Let's talk. Let's talk. <laughs> Most definitely. No, I, I didn't know that you you started off as a as a Marxist, a vulgar Marxist as well, because I was too. And I remember I wrote that in my my letter of intent to go there and to USC. And they told me that some faculties made the statement, "Do you think he could get over that?" <laughs> and, and honestly, yeah, you know, I'm still somewhat of a Marxist, absolutely, right? But I am a reform Marxist. Yeah. yeah. That's it. I'm a reform Marxist, which yeah. means, yeah, class is one of the central axes of social organization of all societies. Yeah. The problem is it's not the only one. Right. And if you assume that class is everything, that class supersedes race, gender, etc., then you're smoking the wacky-tobacky. And then you become an obstacle yeah. because then your class is everything means that you treat race or gender as secondary. Let's use the language of the past. That's a secondary contradiction. I'm like, hey, man, if you kick my ass and you lynch me, that's not secondary, man. That's quite primary. Yeah? Right, right. And it's the same. It might even be the same class of people who lynched you. Right? So they didn't yes. care about that, that class oh, consciousness at that point. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. It's a really good point. I think that's one of the problems with looking also at these people who marched on Washington and tried to do that insurrection is that they were also anti-socialist, anti-communist, but we uh, have complaints about how they've fallen behind in the society and can't see the connections because race becomes so primary to them. You know, so yeah, really and cool. that is that for another, for another podcast. Yeah. What com, what is more central in American society? In order to get to the socialist society, do we go through a class-based program or do we need to have to first deal with race in order to get to class? That's that's another $20, as we say in Puerto Rico, another 20 pesos. Yeah. And a lot more. <laughs> Absolutely. And if you're going to say you have to deal with race before you deal with class, then do we also have to deal with sexism and homophobia? And uh, that, that, that we need we to have the conversation. Yeah, because yeah, that's the kind of that's, shit that separates us, man. So That's the kind of stuff that, you know, that, that's the, the nitty-gritty of poli- politics in contemporary America. Of course, again, just to leave you with the last point and then, you know, we go. So the issue is that everybody is talking about intersectionality and the need for to match a theoretical approach on intersectionality with a political approach. The problem is this, and you and I are sort of, you know, all folks with connections to movements, very hard for you to do intersectional politics. Very freaking hard. If you go and organize it, well, people, we're fighting on the race, class, gender, sexual orientation from people. What? I mean, I come from a colony. And I do know that they're imagined communities, that there is no Puerto Rican nation, but a variety of peoples in the nation. And that some of the people who talk about Puerto Rico happen to be pro-white. I know all that. But if I'm organizing an anti-colonial resistance movement, and I try to organize saying, it is race, it is class, it is gender, it is sexual orientation, it is ageism. I'm like, okay, how many people are behind me? Hello? Hello? No one? You know, 
Very hard. Very hard. But anyway, I'm getting old. Younger students, your students and mine, may come with a solution to the reader of modern history and be able to successfully craft a race, class, gender movement. I'm an old head. I probably will never be there. I know that we need to be sensitive, but I'm telling organizationally, very hard. Yeah, you know, I, I, you're preaching to the choir now. I've said this on previous podcasts. I'm not going to belabor, belabor it too much. But yeah, intersectional movements are the way we need to go. But it is super hard to convince people super to be hard. part of, of the uh, intersectional movement. So look, I've taken up a lot of your time, Edward, and I really appreciate it because I know how busy you are, man. And I'm glad you've been so gracious with me and my audience and stuff. I have one last question before we break, right, for you. I've been asking this question that was brought up by Heather Dalmage when she was on the show. She said that sociologists can't talk in bumper stickers, right? So I thought, I'm going to make my sociologist talk in a bumper sticker, right? Because she's right. Academics can't do it, man, right? So if you had a quote you would put on a bumper sticker, right? It doesn't have to be yours. It could be anything you've heard. It doesn't have to be about sociology, whatever it is. What would that quote be? Change the world. Or another world is possible. That those are good. But you are right. Sociologists always are. Well, let me tell you the structure of the superstructure of the ontology of the ideology of the articulation. And I like. Yeah. Ah, all you asked them was, "What's your name?" <laughs> Man, I asked you, "Where is the bathroom?" And you're talking about articulation, ideology, hegemony. Man, I already put you on my phone. <laughs> You're right, man. So thank you again. Thank you for the invite, man. Oh, no, man. You know, this this has been a thrill for me and stuff. And I know my audience is going to really appreciate it, too. And I want to thank our audience out there also for listening to Sociologists Talking Real Shit. Thanks for listening to my dad talk real crap.